right. Welcome everyone back to dissecting popular IT nerds today. Super nerd. I mean, it, it might be the, the the biggest nerd we've had on the show. And I mean that in a very cool way. Corey Glickman, welcome to the show and author of Practical Sustainability. You have some really cool things that we're going to talk about. I'm excited, very excited about this show. But first, let's just, let's just plug your book right off, you know, right off the start here. You know, you, you wrote a book during COVID, which is cool. I, I partially wrote a book during COVID. It's it's almost out. But tell me, why did you write the book? Was it I just had nothing to do during COVID, or was this a is this a life project that was that was coming along? Oh, great question. First of all, thank you for uh, inviting me to your show, and uh, certainly appreciate the super nerd title. That's something <laughs> I great pride. Um, so. <laughs> I think everybody wants to write a book eventually, right? Um, somewhere, somewhere down there. Maybe trip. I've had some haters. I've had some haters that said, um, "Yeah, you'll never write a book." Like I remember in college, I was like, "I'm going to write a book." Somebody like, "Yeah, okay, guy." Like whatever. Like you're you're a dreamer. You know, there's always those people that are like kind of putting you down because they need to bring you down to their level. And I try to tell my kids that all the time. You know, who who? What do you mean they did it? Also, who cares? You're not trying to bring someone. Down. What does bringing someone else down to your level do? Help. So you know, you do have those people out there. Mm -hmm. No, that's a great point. And uh, no, I did not like grow up one day saying, "Oh, I'm, one day I have to write a book." So, <laughs> so why did why did I, why did I write the book? So I was um, working um, at the time for a very large Indian IT company. And we had a great history of um, delivering uh, sustainability solutions. Actually had achieved uh, net zero uh, without purchasing any um, offset uh, components. So this, this is great history. And I was recently given this position right before COVID to say, you are now the head of sustainability design. Take yeah. what we've learned over the last you know, 10, 15 years and turn that into commercial um, IT properties, um, create a better world, um, make a business out of this and go ahead and scale. Can and you, and, and please forgive me, because sure. um, I tell people to do this all the time with me, like interrupt me and ask questions because sometimes, you know, simpletons like myself don't understand all this. Can you explain that, what you just said in a very layman's term, like what you did and why it was so good? Okay. Well, what they told you to do, and you just followed directions and made it happen. I mean, that's good, too. Well, it takes a lot of people, but I'll take as much credit as I can off of this. <laughs> <laughs> so we all know about the uh, the climate change issues, right? And we hopefully all understand about diversity and um, the quality components. So as we are being faced with uh, globally the challenges of um, climate change, the impact in business supply chains, as we are trying to make a just transition. So as we create these new economies, that there is a uh, more diversified workforce. But most importantly, we're in this you know race to make sure that we don't um, alter our situation on the planet because of uh, carbon emissions and other factors. This usually gets labeled as sustainability. So many companies are and governments and everybody involved are trying to figure out how do we um, understand that we basically live on a budget on this planet. Resources aren't infinite. There have to be looked at recycling, they have to be looked at reuse. 
technology is a great catalyst um, in order to make this change, new tough climate tech components. There's lots of government regulatory uh, components. So I'm going to stop you right there. Government regulatory components. Um, First of all, I, there's a a section of the show sometimes where I ask people, um, you know, do you believe in in any uh, conspiracy theories? This fits really well into one of them, which is a new world order. And uh, we will be tracked based on our carbon emissions. Is there any truth to that? I think that that is a question that is going to be a hybrid, partially true. And, and the reason <laughs> I'm saying okay, okay. not even being conspiracy theory, um, and I'm not sure it's such a bad Right. So if you're an individual, well, what people are worried about is like, I'll only be able to take one trip a year because I will use up all my carbon emission credits and I won't be able to go, I won't be able to do what I do want to do. I won't essentially be free anymore because I'll be, um, you know, judged based on my carbon emission. I think that's going to depend on what society you live in because you can't just look at everything from a Western point of view. But mm-hmm. I also would say that what is your credit rates going to be given to you by banks? Uh, just like your car, your credit scores, I think your carbon scores are going to impact, you know, what, how much money can you attain or can you purchase a certain house or do you have to purchase an EV vehicle component, right? So there's going to be many constructs along that way. And I think as we see solutions of responsibility, if you are a heavy contributor to the problem, that we perceive, there's going to be regulatory. It's the same thing as uh, people who smoke, right? I'm not going to have to criticize or non-criticize them, but we put regulations in place saying you can't smoke in buildings or in certain cities anymore, right? In this country, whereas in other countries, you can. So I think it's going to depend across there. So will it have an impact? I think it has to have an impact um, on, on how we choose things. So, so one of the, again, just to dive deeper in because I don't know, this this is fun the um i i'm not 100% sure about this but i believe uh china has quite the you know facial recognition technology and is already rating people based on how they purchase things and what they do and or there's kind of like this like whole rating of like a, of a person what what do you think about that you know i would think the carbon emission would go into that like you say so i have eight kids would i be would i be judged based on you know you have too many kids you're eating up too much carbon uh you know you're not, now your your footprint is um is uh i don't know too big i think that um yes okay i'll just be very direct think about how your insurance works you have eight kids right uh-huh. you pay more for your health care insurance you you have to make you know certain decisions on your insurance your life insurance policy it's kind of backwards now it's kind of backwards in in our at least in the West, if you want to contribute the West, because if you have more kids, you actually get more of a tax benefit. Sure. You actually get more of a tax benefit. You're more apt to get free health care than you oh. are to, you know, I mean, so my uh, insurance actually goes down. I, I, I agree. And I'm not saying whether it's good or bad. Um, that was the question of you know, yeah. having, you know, will you be judged? But you will be right. You will be given certain um mm access to programs, you will be given certain benefits, you will pay certain uh, components um, that based off your carbon footprint, I think absolutely. And mm. I think that part of that will be your community and society, but it will also have a lot to do with your job. 
right? So if you're working for an organization, they count every carbon credit for every piece of travel that you do. They will have KPIs. Some have already are saying, you know, what's the carbon footprint of your team? Yeah, yeah. So your measurements, we all work towards our KPIs. We are bonuses that might be associated with it. Our ability to um, deliver on our product. If you're a coder that can produce less carbon, you'll certainly be worth more than somebody who produces more carbon because guess what? Carbon offsets are expensive. They also create huge value in supply chains. So yes, your ability to uh, have less of a carbon footprint or to create solutions that will impact in the proper direction makes you a more valuable member in a business sense and probably in society, right? So yes, how could it not have an impact? Fascinating. Um, I had you uh, the original question about the book because I realized I never answered that question. Yeah, 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 so, so go so so far away. Go. Yeah. So 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 the idea of, of the book was this. It happened just at the point of COVID. And I took on this new role of sustainability design. And it was really saying, how do you do this? And the first thing that I asked myself was saying, so I work for one of very large companies at the time, uh, 350,000 people globally, you know, around the world, uh, not a Western company. So it has a, an interesting perspective. And they were able to achieve carbon neutrality in 10 years time without purchasing any carbon credits. And this is back in 2020 when they achieved this goal. And every company and every organization. Ex- ex- explain that because again, I'm ignorant. A- a purchasing carbon credits. Okay. So the way the system works is this. We all produce carbon in all yes. our activities. However, you can do things that produce less carbon. You right. can use renewable energy sources. You can do reuse and recycle in um, patterns of supply chain. You can increase the um, econ- economic benefits in the communities of where you evolve. You can create intelligent buildings. You can choose to have an EV car or a scooter versus other things, right? There are many You're making me a believer. Go. You're making me a believer. Right? Okay, yep. However, you can't eliminate all carbon it, uh, offsets. Yeah, I mean, you can't, you can't eliminate all greenhouse gases. There's many things you can start to move down that path. However, whatever you have left over, let's say you're able to achieve 50% reduction in all the greenhouse gases in your business and the businesses that you do work with. Uh-huh. You still have left over. So what you need to do then is um, create offsets. And offsets are basically saying for every um, metric ton of carbon that you produce, there's price associated with that. And if you can do either purchase credits, I'll give you an example of what that is, um, that would offset what you have left over that helps you say I'm compliant or you can do CSR corporate social responsibility programs that also give credit and there's measurements based on that so here's an interesting let's call it a tax let's call it a tax sounds like a tax to me it is kind of a tax but it's more of an open market right where you can trade carbon credits you can put them out in the marketplace and every country has different rules and every Corporation and even sector has different ways of measuring the cost of carbon. So it, it's extremely an investment. Uh, Unless we have a global takeover and we have a new global wor- world order, then then um, sure. this, this this could uh, equalize. Um, it could. It could. Uh, it, it, keep going. Keep going. This is great. Let me give you one example. So Tesla, right? Of course. 
whatever you think of Elon Musk one way or another, it's just your own thoughts. But if you look at how they make most of their profits, they make a certain amount of profits in say putting out their Tesla vehicles. Of course mm-hmm. they do many other things than vehicles. Yep. However, because of how they produce those vehicles and the way that they do their electric economy, uh-huh. they produce a tremendous amount of offsets that they can resell out into the marketplace uh-huh. to say the state of Georgia, who's not hitting their quotas. Yep. So this state of Georgia will buy credits directly from Tesla in order to do the offsets. And that's a more profitable business than actually making cars. Sounds that's good for Elon. Yeah, it's very good for Elon. And then in the opposite side, many companies, particularly in the U.S. In the, and in Canada right now, they talk about replanting forests, right? That's, that's yeah. kind of a no-brainer saying offsets. But what happens when those forests go up in flames? You're basically burning away your carbon offset bank. And you're also increasing more greenhouse gases due to the fires. So one way to look at all the Canadian wildfires and things that are happening on the West Coast is a lot of these banks of offsets that they put into their accounting saying, look, we're a company that is hitting these goals, went up in smoke literally, right? So it's a very, very complex you know, scenario that takes place. The, what's the, and the whole thing where I got that whole, the, the Chinese credit score and, 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 watch, and, and, and judging people, it's actually from a video from Elon Musk. And he was talking about, you know, how China was like way ahead of, you know, uh, tracking all of these things. And there's a theory that maybe, maybe, um, you know, no longer Twitter, what is it? X or whatever it's called, you know, might, might be the, one of the newest or best ways to use this uh, social credit score tracking system, et cetera. The, what's, uh, what do you have to say about the, and this is just me asking, I don't know if you know anything about this, the amount of natural resources and, and digging and, and all that stuff that in a, you have to charge electrical vehicles. What's the offset there? What's the math around that of having to, you know, unearth all of these things to make the batteries to begin with. And then you have to charge them, obviously. Uh, what, what's the math on that? Yeah. So I think math is like anything else. The statistics are always there, but there is, there are formulas that basically say per individual, um, um, how can you calculate the um, cost of the energy resource? What would be the offset? So I'll give you a couple of examples um, through this. So here's a working example. If you think about this in context, what a solution might look like. And then let's talk about maybe breaking down how those offsets might work. So say you have a mining um, operation and you want to have large equipment that is basically going to be using renewable energy, right? In order to do their operations in this environment. So how would you design that? Would you have uh, EV charging stations that would basically power these vehicles? And those EV charging stations could be powered by solar, wind, micronuclear, or other, say, renewable things, or they could be powered by coal and fossil, you know, behind the scenes. Yes. Depends on what what that grid is. But the better solution would be not to have these vehicles constantly travel to get charged, but why not create a mobile charger with artificial intelligence that knows to go to the vehicles when they need it to have the equipment running. It's pretty sweet. Maybe maybe we have a drone. Maybe we have like a, you know, like a uh, solar powered drone flying. Right. So how do you calculate the offsets? You would have to look at the vehicles themselves, how they were produced, 
How does the charging system work? What is the network of the grid? What are the companies that are supplying those components? What is the cost of extracting the minerals? Uh, what is it that the tactic and human labor? All these things have to be calculated as part of your offset components. And the fact of the matter is, is this. I think 40 to 50% of all the minerals that we're talking about for green technologies reside in Africa. And mm. only 50% of that has really been discovered. 50% of Africa hasn't even been looked at yet for minerals. There so, we go. Keep going. A, you know, amazing opportunity, but we also are looking at political situations. We're looking at um, where's the infrastructure money in order to enable this to take place that come from Europe, come from U.S., from China. Yeah. Um, how major political implications, major political implications. Yeah. Just transition to great green industrial cities in Africa, build these corridors take place without neocolonialism taking place, right? The traditional uh, yes. have what you have, take what you have and keep the old guard well. Screw the people public. over that lived there and yeah, you know, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. there's a lot of implications that you know take place. It's also a great opportunity though, right? Because if you can solve this correctly, you're you're changing it. And Africa is super important as is the global south because we have population shrink shrinkage here in the US. We have population shrinkage in China. We have growth in India. Then we're seeing them rise very quickly. But the largest growth is actually in Africa. Over the next 30 to 40 years, 50% of the population growth is going to happen in Africa. Uh, most of the new cities are going to be taking place there. Most of the minerals reside there. What doesn't reside there is stability or those relationships yet, right? I think we have a big problem, A, with... Well, it, it would be hard. To, it's hard to go there, but a big problem with the banking system, a big problem with, uh, I guess, kind of this individualistic, uh, in, individualistic view versus kind of the socialistic view. I'm not saying I'm, I'm a socialist. I'm not saying that. Um, you should just go to Africa and, um, you know, just, you know, teach. <laughs> Maybe... You know, and then uh, you just you know, then disappear, then uh, that maybe you know Africa will come out on top. Well, here's it's an interesting point that you bring about banking, right? So if you talk to banks about um, IT and and sustainability and, and ESG components, the first thing that they're looking at is climate risk, right? They're saying how do we judge which to invest in, what should be the rates, and what's the climate risk, whether it's because of hurricanes or because of political instability. So banks look are, at this- Are you sure it's not problem. just like, how do we make money and take over the world? Well, I think- just, I mean, from an, from an honest, honestly, from- from honest perspective, banks, in, in the purest sense, yes, they want to make money, but generally when banks- make money they distribute money out that's how businesses get funded this is how things take place right that's also how wars get started and you know oh, of course of course if, if you know the real history i mean you know not just the history that you know we watch on tv but um let's go back to the book back to the book so this is i mean we could just go through the book and probably have like a we probably have hour-long conversations on everything from from the so this all came off of me asking one little question that i didn't understand so back to and i don't remember what that was so we'd have to rewind, but let's let's step back to where we were. Sure. So you the basic question you asked is so so why write the book? What's in the book? 
So yes. I asked my question, why did it take, why is, why did it only take us 10 years to achieve this goal that everybody else is saying that it's going to take them 20 to 30 years to go do this? So went back and said, what's out there? What existing technologies are out there? What existing processes? And also said, what are the new things that are coming out? And what's the right mix and blend? What are things? Oh, I remember that, what it was. It was the carbon. It was like, why are we buying carbon? Um, why are we buying carbon? Yeah. So yes. what was the success? What was the success? Can you give a, first a picture of the success and what you guys did and what happened and all that? Sure. So the largest footprint for any uh, part of a uh, carbon footprint has to do with the built environment. So the idea of creating buildings, uh, campuses, uh, roadways, airports, this is the biggest impact. It's 39% you want to be exact yep. of carbon of, of the carbon footprint so being able to design smart buildings or plan um, using applied systems design you can actually start to make much more efficient buildings and it's interesting a lot of these ideas are actually older technologies you know we have buildings with digital twins we can understand better HVAC systems we can learn a lot of lessons through there the second part is getting the right kind of energy sources that come into play whether it's using renewables or using um, purchase power agreements that comes from renewable energies. And then the third part is how do you impact the communities around you? And can you drive a um, um, higher economic value, right, of, of learning and-, and, and I love and, it. And, it's so true too, because um, I just put a new HVAC unit in my one part of my house. And uh, I have a buddy who owns like an HVAC business. So, you know, I said, he put this unit in that's like a high efficient electric, you know, like really high efficient, you know, heat pump. And it didn't have some Wi-Fi feature or something. And I said, like, you know, why does it not have this? He's like, this technology has been around for a long time. And this particular heat pump is so efficient and it's been around for a long time. And it's, you know, I just, I was thinking to me, he's like, this has been around for like 14 years. He's like, people just don't know about it and don't put them in. And they're only put them in, putting them in, in these like high efficient buildings. I don't know any more than that. I sound really stupid about it, but anyways, keep going. No, um, no, agree. And, there's a bit. And oh no, I know what it was. I asked him, I said, so why aren't more, why aren't people doing this? He's like, yeah, it's just, people just do it the old way. They just know, slap this system in, charge someone some money, make this profit. So they just keep using the same stuff because that's what they learned that they learned how to put in, you know, whatever Mitsubishi or, you know, whatever they learned this model. So they've just been putting that in for the last 10 years. It keeps making the money and boom, they're done. I couldn't agree with you more. You know, the book so that's a problem, you know, like, like that, that's problem. what, yeah, just whatever. What do we call that? Capitalism. I don't know. Like, you know, just some dude needs to make money and put food on the table. So we got to bring in the credit. Now we got to bring in the credit score and <laughs> carbon. Like, well, look, your carbon score has just gone down. So you need to learn how to make this system. And uh, otherwise uh, you will be on the streets. Okay. Keep going. The book looked at three things. And then there's a common pattern that I'll come back to on this. So the book looked at the built environment. It looked at circular commerce, right? So this idea that if you're going to have a supply chain take place, how do you put in as least waste as possible into that and pull out, end up with as least waste as possible, right? So, so many things going through my brain. I'm sorry. I'm very ADD. The coffee's starting to kick in. Don't forget, I am on some muscle relaxants and everything. Not that, no narcotics, no narcotics, just muscle relaxants. Everyone listening, I do have a very torn shoulder. I'm in severe pain right now, but this is exciting. Talking actually is therapeutic to the pain. 
Um, so if anyone's ever going through severe pain, talk with people. Uh, maybe start a podcast. The, the supply chain. I mean, just think about what's going on in America right now with COVID and everything and like the trucking industry going through the roof, but all the truckers losing their shirts at the same time. I mean, there's got to be some, you must have some thoughts on that, but go back to your supply chain. I just wanted to throw that in there in case there is a, you know, some, uh, some, you know, industry altering thought that you have to provide to our IT directors out there that are in logistics and supply chain, you know, management and stuff like that. You know, maybe there's something that they can do because this show is about um, using technology as a business force multiplier. So if you, if you look at the two, the two points you just asked about, so circular commerce is simply designed as there's technical loops and biological loops and systems. And you want to start to rethink as you produce products within some system, they should probably either last longer or have a, from the day you think about it, you should think, what's the reuse? It's not going to end up in a landfill. Okay. Mm. That, that basic Marketing doesn't like that. Marketing doesn't like that. It's like, Mark I think Chris Rock, I think Chris Rock one time said, can't they make a Cadillac where the bumper doesn't fall off? It, you, you've kind of got this right. And um, there <laughs> are examples, uh, but, but marketing can figure this out. So uh, a very good example of this would be uh, printing, like our, our home printers that we have. Oh, yes. Years ago, how did they make their money? They sold you uh, ink cartridges. Well, they actually didn't sell yeah, you cartridges. They, they still do the it. It's like, hey, I can get this printer for 50 bucks. They sell you the printers, right? But <laughs> but before they sold you the printer, right? And yeah. the printer would be replaced every three years. Uh -huh. And you would basically, that's how they made their money. How many printers could they sell to you coming across there? Mm. And then it was very much about the um, concept of printing as a service was the switch, right? Uh. So you no longer have to go to the store and buy your expensive cartridges and buy your paper. Your printer's now got enough intelligence inside of it to say, hey, when I'm running out of ink or I'm running out of paper, I will send it to you in the mail the day before you know you need it. Oh, and it tells you to. to Very nice. Except here's the scam with that. You Google online how to reset your printer like mind or whatever you call that back to zero and. Oof, it still prints for another month. It's, it's certainly uh, technology. <laughs> but, but here's, here's the key, right? So they were able to make the switch to say the reason they marketed and the way they made their money was how often could they sell your printer? Generally, every three years, because that's was your CapEx. And every three years, you'd buy a new computer or printer. Yeah, or a five-year model, three or five-year model. Yeah, Yeah. now the switch model says, no, I just simply want you to buy toner and I want you to buy uh, paper. Yeah. And, and as you need it, oh, yeah. I can build you a printer that will last 15 years. Yeah. Right? Just, like, just like every Microsoft product. I don't need to buy a disc anymore. Exactly. So, oh, so OPEX. Is, it's all OPEX. So if you go back to trucking now, so what's the, what's the two biggest, or at least the two obvious issues about trucking? Absolutely necessary to deliver things, right? That's how our supply chain gets delivered. And certainly mm -hmm. it's called out you know, during COVID. And a lack of drivers, right? There's just not enough people that can well, do there's this. plenty of drivers. They're just not getting paid. They're not making any money. Right. So, but that still equals lack of drivers, right? Yes, 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 yes. So how do you do that? You create a system that doesn't require drivers. Yeah. You have driverless trucks. Well, yes. Which is happening, right? It, it certainly is out there from a technology perspective. Um, and you also are using renewable 
components. There are you know, massive components going through here from, from, from labor change. So it, what are we out? Five, 10 years from truly autonomous vehicles, you know, and trucks will be one of the first adoptions that we should have more, uh, yeah, maybe more rail, 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 railways or other, other forms of transportation as well. Sure. Um, but in the U S it's very different than it is Europe, right? So in the U S it is, it is all about, um, Amtrak and they get right away. They don't get right away to Conrail. You know, it, it, mm. it's more about supply and demand of shifting freight from West coast, to East coast generally. Uh -huh. And I've seen models that have looked at to say, if you're taking, chain takes so much time to go across the country and it's actually the most efficient form of travel of, of logistics besides the ocean um i think like a gallon of diesel would travel 300 miles it's some, something ridiculous statistic like this right so it's extremely <laughs> efficient but if you make your trains actually become factories that are constantly moving now you've solved another problem right that from the time raw materials comes on the west coast you might have finished products on the east coast if you design your 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 roving factories in the proper way so there, there's lots you of you are such a nerd i love it love but it makes sense right and it's 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 already being looked at europe's a little bit different because of the infrastructure after world war ii having to you know redo the auto industry and building network networks you know through railways it's much more about transportation between countries but in our country because of the depth and breadth and we'd love to own cars here Trains will never become the main, you know, way that we transport around at this point. So people are going to uh, lose their mind if you take away their diesel, their dually, Ram, you know, thirty five hundred, one ton. You got it. Yeah. So what do you mean? I don't need no Tesla. So the third part of the book, <laughs> coming back to your question about people, is happier humans. So if people don't adopt this or are happy about the situation, then they're not going to adopt it, right? So why would they not choose the heating system that you talked about? Maybe they didn't know about it. Maybe they weren't convinced. Pattern that we've seen when it comes to adopting these kinds of technologies is really uh, four stages. The first one is you have to be able to understand the data, right? What data do I need to understand? in order to understand the baseline and where I want to head and, to. How do I collect that data and understand it? And right? to provide some metaphorical pieces, because this is great, um, this could apply on a smaller scale, on a, on a micro scale as well, I would think, inside a general manufacturer or something like that, just taking these steps. So first, understand your data. Go. Right. Secondly, understand your sustainable finance. How is the economic model going to work with the changes that you're trying to invoke because if it doesn't hold up economically, it doesn't matter how good of an idea it is, right? It's economically, it has to make sense. It's just not going to work. CapEx, OpEx, return on investment. All go. of that. Do, do the numbers. It's a numbers game. So in other words, it's a numbers game. So number one, data, crunching numbers data. It's a numbers game. Yep. Third, third part is your technology, right? So you could be your digital technology. It could be your material technology, your physical, and mm -hmm. now it could be the quantum technologies right, that we're starting to see and what's the impact across those. And that's a little bit of a flip, right? Because if you were traditionally, as we think of Silicon Valley in particular, we say, oh, we're going to start something up. First thing we do is we invent a technology and then we say, this is going to go solve this problem. Hopefully yep. they think about problem they can solve first, but I have to have a technology that works for anything to, to take place. And then the fourth part is there needs to be customer adoption, right? You need to have that cultural adoption component. So in your case, when you talk about that heating system, why do customers even know about this? It's probably the contractor saying, this is what I'm going to give you. 
they either made the decision off price or they were convinced. I was going to say the third step is is making the right decisions. I was going to say it's basically what you said. The third step was making the right decisions, but yeah, it's it's knowledge, and you don't know what you don't know. And there's yeah, this ocean of yes, keep going. Mm-hmm. So so those are the four basic roles, and I think what is becoming very very interesting, uh, especially with IT. There's a wave of what we call green IT right now. Yep. And basically, it says everything that an IT department would deliver, anything from, say, networking to cloud to how they program to uh-huh. how they distribute equipment, um, so forth, all can be tweaked to actually have a, a less carbon footprint. I would assume. I would assume that's a plug for um, AWS, Azure, Google Cloud. I mean, if you're running. If you're more migrated to the cloud, I would assume you're. I would assume they're more efficient at managing whatever kilowatt hours and energy stacks and stuff like that in a data center than. Um, Without a doubt. Okay. Yeah, they could do that, but you could also say it's the it's the equipment provider, your your laptops, right? Like you know why it goes kind of back to the printer discussion. So why do laptops have to be replaced every three to five years? What if you made a, a better laptop? You know that. Didn't why does my that. iPhone? Why does my why does iPhone come out with a new iPhone every uh, six months? Why do you think? <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Why? Well, yeah, you know what I mean. Like, why? Uh, if, and if I don't upgrade, it slows down. Okay, so you answered this for me because I don't know the answer to this one. So, why does an iPhone cost three times the cost of a washing machine? Yeah, it has as many computer chips and at least a hundred x times the materials required to 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 build yeah. it. Yeah, because they can. That's right. Is That's that, right. I mean, sometimes the most simplest answer is, you know, the truth. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Next question. <laughs> it's like, you know, like, <laughs> like, okay, I didn't, you know, it didn't take a genius to figure that one out. I don't even, I don't, um, uh, <laughs> I, I, have, I have a comment for what your, your perspective on something here. So I was just, uh, was reading, um, on the wire today that, some respectable institutions just did a test for um, what happens if you were to completely do your software development cycle completely with AI, right? And okay, I'm sorry, be- what was that? You were going to scrap everything and do your all your software with AI? Okay. All your software with AI. How would that work, right? So mm-hmm. they ran a, a very strong test, and yeah. they said, okay, from the design, coding, test, and documentation, uh-huh. they built, I believe, 70 applications. Uh-huh. The application took seven minutes to produce a one dollar in cost. Great, eighty-eight percent accuracy. Yeah, it's and probably just a, it would have taken the coder how long, and how accurate would he have been? Depends on the coder. It depends on the coder. It certainly would cost you a dollar, and eighty-eight <laughs> percent efficiency. And it certainly wouldn't happen in seven minutes. What they use? And they used uh, the Chat GPT, and they also used the Google. Um, um, Okay. Yeah. What I found in my well, what's the question? Well, well, the question is is what is the impact that's going to have on IT departments and companies that put their services out to provide consulting services for large corporations to to do things that are dependent on large pyramid models, right? It's about bodies versus time, right? And that's well, how. Go ahead, is. just explain your pyramid model. So. Typically, when a an IT project is 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 done, you have a team, right? And you you have you know a senior, maybe an enterprise architect. You have a scrum master. You have um, all the other components, 
agile or waterfall, all of these yeah. components yeah. And they cost a lot of money. And it's uh-huh. a global distributed component, right? Yeah. And yeah. you have a lot of software and a lot of things that are going on in that. It's How's stupid. That? It is crazy. If you were to build an IT department today, what would it look like? I had a guy, I had an agile guy come and ask me the day. He's like, well, you know, because I'm doing some, we're doing like a community project and rebuilding a building in a very low, in, low income area of Hartford. And he's an agile dude. So, well, we should do this. We're going to do that. I'm going to bring in this project manager and blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, you know, I, I kind of talked to him a little bit about, you know, what I was doing and with the podcast and stuff. And I was like, you know, I was like, you do realize that in a startup company, you don't exist. Right. You cost a lot of money. I was like, you only exist in like very, you know, expensive organizations. So you have this, you know, kind of, uh, it's just interesting. Like it was, it was kind of like a paradigm shift. We were both having a paradigm shift at the same time. And I was like, well, maybe I do need like an agile guy. And he was thinking, well, maybe I am worthless and, uh, or maybe I wouldn't exist, you know? And it was just like, uh, but anyways, keep going. So, uh, it, it, so you realize that you're going to be replaced with chat GPT. No, you already have. Um, Okay, so they produced all this. So I'm still trying to get to the question. What's the what's this deep question for me? So, so, so the question is is that the role of an IT department and the the economics. Um, yes, yes. That's the question, right? Deep. When does the tipping point happen that just says, "Yes, my my 300 people that I have, they don't make economic sense for me." Yeah, we should be thinking. So here's the great. It's a great point. So yeah, we should be thinking properly. It it really it probably really depends on a who the CEO hires. Is the CEO smart enough or whoever's in charge to hire the right IT minded individual? Does the IT what kind of IT individual are we hiring? Are we hiring like a the typical stereotypical engineering, you know, uh tunnel vision like blinders on uh IT guy? Or are we hiring the more creative thinker, you know, out of the box uh, CTO? Right, um, and I think that's I think that's important, right? Because then, and that CTO is going to not just be say savvy as a chief digital officer kind of business. You know, business needs to have design incorporated and it needs to understand the economics. But I think that they will have to understand um, creativity and innovation. They're probably two different things. Right. They're not this linked. Their creativity could certainly just be labeled as I'm thinking outside the box, whether it makes economic sense or not. But it's it's a new way of doing something right, um, either in the market or even um, on a world stage. Right. It's yeah. just a new way of doing something. Yeah, Where innovation we... could be I've just really saved your costs by X or I've taken a process and I recalibrated it so that it works much better you know, in, in, in a certain way, right? There's probably multiple ways that an industry could take over and really rise to the top really quickly if they were creative Mm -hmm. enough and thought the way that you're thinking here with, with green technology and and eliminating, you know, kind of like the fastest path to the cash, so to speak, um, while also creating employee happiness, whatever that is. Three that's, that's a tricky question. It kind of goes back to your socialist mark before, right? Uh-huh. So 
I'm not a socialist, but I also understand there's lots of parts of the world. So what happens when large parts of the workforce, as we're seeing now, suddenly have to change, right? For example, and not be the, well, let's say um, certain white collar workers and even certain coders in the future are just not required, right, to fill that workforce. Mm -hmm. But you still need that population to have spending power, right? Because a large part of our economies is consumerism, right? Someone has to be able to buy product. And Unless you're a eugenics guy, then we just need to kill them off. That's exactly right. So in certain societies, you would easily come up with a universal basic income, right? That just says, we're going to distribute enough money into society, whether you're working or not, so that you can continue to be consumers, right? Yes. And, and economy. But in it's some funny. societies, we don't do yeah. this, right? It's, it's, it's taboo. It's not seen as a, as, a, as a good thing. But what happens when you have a certain amount of people that are unemployed and can't afford things, you generally have change in political structures, right? So it's, it's going to be an interesting. Uh, it's you know, a day. very deep. It gets very deep understanding how economy and money works. And um, it, I don't know if it's just because I'm older now and, and, and maybe I need to know how this stuff is works more. It's very fascinating to me. Even just exchange rates to me are very fascinating. Anyone listening to this thing will be like, Phil knows nothing about money. But it, it fascinates me that I can take $10 from the United States or $100 from the United States. I can go to another country and I can live a lot longer on that. Mm -hmm. Should that be? Why should I be able to live for a whole year in another country, all my housing, all my food, electricity bills paid, everything for $10,000? Just fascinating to me that yeah. that has to cost that much more here. But what are you giving up for that? That's the question. Um, not bad health, I can tell you that much. Right. Not not the time. Not relaxation. I'm not giving that up. <laughs> not surfing. Not time with my family. I'm giving up stress. I know that much. Well, I'm not going to go there because once again, I'm not wise enough to know you know, how all these things work. I would just, I would <laughs> say that it is interesting that our, um, particularly our technology um, and, and IT driven um, businesses and culture is very much dependent on um, venture capital. It's dependent on patents. It is dependent on Everything ability. comes out of this country. Let's just be honest. Every major invention over the last 200 years, pretty much. I Please name one. Maybe this will be a new section of the show. Name an invention that didn't come out of the United States. I know you know one. There's got to be one. Oh, there's got to be more than one. But um, I would say advanced robotics. Um, okay. What, Germany? Where are we coming from? Where was that? Korea. Korea. Okay, um, great. Yeah, I think some of the things that China, you see there, some of the things that you're seeing in the East yeah. right now, China. Um, I would say that there um, might be using designers um, from this area, right? Um, watches, right? Uh -huh. Watches eventually were invented here, but you'd buy a Swiss watch before you'd buy something else, right? I guess you'd say mm. maybe better, better brand across there. I would say that there are many parts of society that do some very interesting um, components that maybe we don't talk about um, you know, enough. For example, uh, technologies. 
I would say probably some of the most advanced um, chip making is not happening here. It's happening in China right now. Mm. Next generation stuff we we know is happening through there. And we also know that um, the uh, supply chain and manufacturing processes happen a bit smoother in, in other areas. I'd say that U.S. education is still empowering the world, right? We haven't reached a point yet where, say, other cultures are um, surpassing its education. But who is the country that just put that first uh, landed a completely robotic uh, module on a part of the moon that had never been there before and launched a robot to go do that. That wasn't us. Did they? Yes. They, they, oh, you think that's a conspiracy? I, I don't know. Sure did they? Did. Let me ask. Did we land on the moon in 1969 before the? I'm pretty sure we did. Yeah. I, I have to go that one. I don't I believe there's every single book somewhere, right? I yeah, bought I, every single book on this subject. I've been reading them, just fascinated. Like, why would people really, you know, I bought everything. And when you get into the rockets, the lift capability, the amount of tonnage that we had to lift, the 220, is it 220,000 miles? I think it's 220,000 miles to the moon, three day trip. A phone call from the White House. President Nixon on a phone, reach out and touch someone AT&T to the moon, to a little umbrella on a Land Rover. It's pretty fascinating that we did that in 1969 and have yet to do that again. Well, we, I mean, open my, I mean, if, if, if you like everything that we've been told, right. That it's, it's insane to even believe that it might possibly be not that it, that it's a ridiculous thought to everybody, just about everybody. It's absolutely ridiculous to even contemplate that. But when you really look into the details, it's a serious, it's a very serious, uh, it's it's much, it's a much more complicated, it's a very, very unbelievable thing when you really think about sending someone to the moon. This is no, um, I, I don't, I think a lot of people are just like, yeah, we went to the moon. Of course we did. Like, yeah, we're America. We did. We've we've got the science. We've got the technology. It's math. It's math, Phil. It's science. Mm -hmm. Like, yes, we were able to use analog devices and look out the window of the ship and map it via the stars. And it's called, you know, whatever. And, you know, anyways, it's uh, when I've started to actually look into this subject in depth, I, I actually, I'm not saying that it's not possible that we... I, I'm just saying there is a lot of question marks and well, a lot of, and a lot of people that died and disappeared and a lot of other, uh, and a lot of things that, why didn't we do this? Why didn't, why, yeah, why are there no stars in the background? Why didn't we put like a bunch of mirrors on the moon to prove that someone was on the moon? Why do we believe just what we saw on TV You know all these different things? Wow. Uh, well, you, it's you, a fun you subject can to you can go there. My simple answer is this. My wife worked for NASA. Okay, so so what? Four hundred thousand so, people were involved on the were involved on the project, right? I, I've seen enough evidence, and I also believe in science. You know, a lot of this stuff was designed by Tchaikovsky back in the eighteen nineties of how this would actually work, right? Russian scientist, mathematician. The math all makes sense. The technology was available. We'd have to now, do another show just to talk about this alone. I would love to. I would love to see 
how this all happened. Because one of the theories is, oh, yeah, there's 400,000 people involved in the project, of course, but everyone was compartmentalized and working on their piece to make their piece work. That's why. But um, Okay, well, anywho. I'll do another show on that one, but um, I'll disagree with you on this one. I'm pretty sure. I, did, hey, to- I didn't say we didn't go. I'm just saying I'm open-minded enough to listen to what, the, you know, uh, I, I don't know at the end of the day. Um my father would say I am freaking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, do other other nations have gone to the moon? Um, I just read uh, it. I, I read that it would be interesting. I would love to see you read um, read some of the books on the subject, and like we could just go through like bullet points of like like the things that were brought up, and be like, okay, well, what about the F? What was the F three engine rocket or whatever not being able to bring you know this amount of lift? Like, what about that? You know, okay, what about um, you know the the fact that the the ramp, like whatever the com- guidance computer that they used was, could only do th- this, this, and this. You know, there's so many components. There's just absolutely sure. so many things. But you have to ask yourself simple questions there is yeah. proof of garbage trash left on the moon now the human trash okay that's what i would love to see where how the, the satellites can show it i mean there you can find you can look it up and you can actually look yeah it. i know and people are like oh what about deep family? Get there, right so you know we, we trash wherever we go that's proof enough for me if, 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 if there's, there's a f- trash, right yep if if yes and i think other people would argue like oh well how do we know that's like that picture is real and you know these different things and all this stuff like this but um yeah and if we did land something on the moon why aren't we sending uh you know satellites to like you know circumvent the moon and you know oh there's the rover it's still there you know why don't we have clear pictures of this like clearer than what we had before so anyways that's just the that's just for fun to hopefully make people really mad at phil howard for on dissecting popular it nerds for even bringing up such an absurd subject the uh more importantly i had somebody say to my daughter one time when she said that because she does sewing for like you know like a lot of my kids do sewing for fun like sewing machines and they're like what are you like in the 1980s are you from the 1980s and i was like oh crap i was born in 1976 so i guess i guess we're getting old now you're back back in time uh what were you doing prior to the invention of the internet let's say what was the difference in your life between 1986 and 1987 Sure. So in 1986, I had been working at a public television station as both a design director and a show producer, basically doing special effects and um, figuring out content for shows. And that was just at the beginning where there were um, this idea of Telnet. Uh, Ted Turner in particular was very interested in education over computers as opposed to just TV, which was the landmark way of technology of communication. Um, And that was 86. In 87, it became, all right, we can take a, um, build an Apache server box and got a call from uh, uh, Mr. Andreessen. To basically say, hey, we're trying to build a graphical interface to how people are communicating certain groups, you know, over these boxes and across here. And I'm thinking about a product called Netscape. We can figure this out. And and that was probably the difference between 1986 and 1987. People don't even know. Netscape, keep going. 
Yeah. So to give you context, back then, uh, there were really no web pages. Um, the search algorithm was a company called Lycos, um, basically. Was Yahoo. it basically a messaging board or what was that like? Was that like a DOS yeah. prompt type of thing or like what were you yeah, looking yeah, at? Yeah, Linux was using Linux, right? HTML was just being used by scientists, but Linux was, was the standard back then. Yeah. There were, um, it's just the beginning concepts that we start working on of actually a web having a front end and back end. You would have some kind of user interface up front that you would see, but there'd be back end transactions that would be, whether it was HyperCard or dynamic Webflow pages that said, God, so not every page is a single page that gets linked. You could actually go three dimensional and you know pull data back and forth between this front end and this back end world. And having servers that could, quote, handle that um, was imperative and giving toolboxes, little snippets of code. Uh, the first um, visuals that I remember of seeing video over there, can't remember the exact name. Uh, I'm going to say white box, but it was something similar to this. It was basically there was a single server that you could post a live image like we could be doing over a smartphone, for instance. And it refreshed at five frames a second, <laughs> basically. And it sounded like you were talking to, you know, a um, someone in outer space, you know, on a space station. It was like all broken up and garbled. But that was the first time that you could actually have two people have a conversation over over the internet um, through there. And it was oh, yeah. those inventions that started things such as the GNN network, which really became AOL, you know, built that for Steve Case. Um, it was the first GPS system components that we said, what happens if we were to link GPS satellites so that we could do geolocation and map it? And this is something the Navy we worked on with them, created geosystems uh, for MapQuest was one of the first components. Um, we started looking at tools and boxes that would allow a developer to say, if I put these together, I can actually start creating web pages. And I'm also starting to invent things like autofill, which is going to be on my tombstone. And it's going to be misspelled because that's probably the worst thing I've done to society. Actually, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. So all of these things happen because in the beginning of a technology cycle, there's no limits, right? W what do you want to create? All right. No one's told me I can't do it yet. It's just, am I smart enough to solve for something? And I just do it. And I'm not sure the value of it yet, but if it sticks, it'll stick. And if so this not, is a good question. So this is, uh, uh, do you miss those days? The um, I don't miss those days because those days still exist for me. Exactly. And that's exactly where I was going. How do you stay constantly renewed? And this so, is for people that like, you know, get tired of the, you know, they're just like, there's so many people out there just like, I'm just tired. I'm just, I'm done. How do you stay renewed? What's the, is it just, yep. you know, live like a curious child all the time or what is it? I, I think it's, uh, there's probably something deeply psychologically disturbed with individuals like myself, but I would say oh, I like that it. <laughs> it starts with, um, there's always a problem to solve, right? Uh -huh. there, there's something you want to do, you know, there's some kind of problem to solve. And then I think the other component is you need to find the right environment and individuals to to work with right no how do you do that and i've said that too i i i've a lot of times i, I try to give that people people advice and I say look you need to really choose where you go and what you do 
Mm-hmm. I don't people. I don't know if people necessarily do that. I think it's 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 hard, right? Because it's 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 a risk factor that you take, and I also think there's a, a conception, right? It depends on what kind of individual you are. So some people would say you could only do that by going from start to start, right? And there there's a level like that. I'm, I'm starting something up, and therefore I can constantly invent and do things. Or right. pick you the right can startup. Do it the other way. You could do this inside a very large organization, right? One of the big players. Um, but you have to kind of find how to reinvent yourself every three years. And the reason I say three years, it takes about three years to go from an idea to prove that it's actually scalable or that it should die off. It, it, it is like a three-year cycle. Maybe that will accelerate, but right now it's still this three-year. You start someplace, you're in this golden period of they're going to listen to you, you'll, you'll have ideas, you'll get some kind of backing. Then you better prove that you can do it once, twice, or three times. You're going to have to build some kind of smallish group that can prove that it functions and it's billable and it, whatever is necessary to survive. And then it's going to have to do something of significance in order for it to go on and scale. And that's about a three-year cycle. And then that's usually your, your test period. And if it doesn't work in three years, chances are you're going to have to move on or figure out how to rethink this again. And because the, the reality is this, it always starts out with the technology. I know we talked about the data and you need that data to understand what problem you're trying to solve. But if your technology doesn't work, you're sunk. The second thing is, is whatever you had planned for, your resource-wise, either physical resource, people resource, financial resource, it's never going to be enough of what you thought you needed, right? And so therefore, you're going to have to go back and sharpen your pencil and say, I have to do with less, but I got to do more with less. And that's actually going to make a better design because you suddenly said, you know what? What did I really have to have? And what would I like, would have liked to have had? So you get better at it. And you might have to pivot and you'll have to be tough and you'll figure it out. And the way that it will survive is that if your idea is strong enough, right, or you have enough people that are interested in it, it will probably survive these iterations that you go through. So whether you go to startups or whether you go work inside a larger organization that can do large projects, which has always been attractive to me, is you want to do large things, is you probably have to reinvent yourself every three years. And you probably are going to be one of those very difficult candidates, employees, or part of the group, whether you're in a hive or in a larger group of people that they don't really know what your job description is. <laughs> or do you take assignments saying, okay, I'll invent it as I go along. And I don't have to have the answer to everything. And with risk tolerance, like I have a rule, which isn't original. Um, I actually read it from Colin Powell and said, yep, he nailed it dead on. If you have an idea or a situation that is um, um, less than 40%, no matter how good idea it is, but you can only see 40% of what's going on, probably not going to make it. Mm. However, if you can get in a range between, if you if you can get to 70% of a vision or part of that solution, that's probably enough to know it's going to go forward. So somewhere between 40 and 70%, you have a pretty good chance that you're going to have a fair shot of succeeding. Once I hit 70%, I don't need to get to 100%. That's just a waste of money and time. I should just go for it, right? So having organizations have different levels of risk and as an individual, you have to decide what are the things you're going to do. Are you going to be a zero to one inventor? Are you going to be someone who can take that one to 10, right? And get that one idea and, and, and get it to the point where it's actually provable? Or are you going to be an individual that's going to go 10 to a billion, right? And, and make something big? Or are you going to be all three? It's hard to be all three. Maybe you can be two out of three, maybe one out of three. You kind of have to decide what it is that you're going to do. 
and you know you're going to get beat up in all process. So it's mm. just the way it is, right? That was priceless. I don't even know where to begin. There's so much to unpack there. I'm going to try to summarize this as simple as possible. A, you got to be able to, you have to be willing to take risks. Some people are unwilling to take risks. You have to be willing to believe that you can create something out of nothing, meaning an idea and take it to life. Three, it's a risk, but it's got to be a calculated risk. So you actually have to break down the numbers. It's a numbers game. And uh, you don't just do something stupid based on a dream. A lot of people do that. They, they're they like, you know, they, they have an idea. It's just an idea. It's really more of a dream. And, oh, we're, I just throw all the money at it. They never did the math. They never did the, they never calculated it out. They never looked at the the process or the, like, you know, like you said, like calculated, like the, the whole Colin, Colin Powell thing, the 40 to 70%, 70%. That's called a business plan. Yes. So who's planning? Who's planning? You know, you might be goal setting, but who the heck's, oh, I got tons of planning. I don't need planning. I don't need planning. Yeah, I mean, I hear, you know, how many times I've heard that? Like, I don't need planning. We got plenty of planning. Okay, fine. That might be the case. That might actually be the case, but okay, well, what's the plan pointing to? Maybe, the, maybe it's pointing to something stupid. I don't know. But yeah, I if people ask me sometimes, like, how did you start your business and how did you get where you were? And I was like, well, it's a numbers game. I looked at the numbers. Um, I figured this is what I'm going to do. I know the numbers and now let's subtract 30% and see if I'll still be successful. And that takes you right to the 70% thing. That's mm -hmm. interesting. Yeah. And I was like, I just knew like if I do 70% and then I look at the math, I was like, will I still survive? Will I be able to keep the lights on in the house? Will I still make, will I still have food? Yeah, I will. Well, I know I can do this if I know that I can. So if the number was, like uh, if, 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 if the number was, you know, this, this is the goal. And I know that I always hit 80%. All right, let's subtract 30% from 80%. And if I do that, will I survive? Yes. So if that makes any sense, it just sounds like a bunch of like, like a mind map, but yeah. It, it makes sense. And you know, it's an older model, but it still holds true. Uh, I think Harvard had done it and it is a balanced portfolio idea, right? So if you're going to provide services um, and also innovations and you categorize into three areas, um, core services, things that are done that just should be done and maybe you're not doing, right? And they're going to have a return on investment of a 10% cost savings or a 10% increase. I just should be doing these things. I haven't done them yet. 70% of what I'm doing in my portfolio is adding a 10% value across there. Nobody's going to deny that business model. Then the next level is adjacent innovation. Matt is saying, hey, there's a somebody else that's doing something cool, e-commerce in grocery stores. And if I applied that to a clothing store or to okay. a pharmaceutical company, I don't have to invent it, but I have to transform it and put it into context, right? I could see a huge advantage. So it's an adjacent innovation. There's higher risk because maybe it will or won't take, but it it's a it's not a super high risk it's just a matter of execution and marketing and, and components and then there's a third level that says i'm going to do a moonshot go back to the moon right so i'm going to create the next itunes i'm going to send somebody off to the moon and get him back safe whether you believe it or not and that could make me the next unicorn right so if you go to any sane person with money whether it's a vc person or to your cfo in a company and you say look i'm going to break this down 70% of what they're going to do is going to be a 10% return on investment, 
20%, well, you have a good chance of maybe a 20% return on investment, but I can't guarantee it, but it's, I can prove it to you. It shows over here. We just haven't done over here, so it's a great way of innovating. And the third one's a moonshot saying, boy, we could be the next Powerball winner, right? You know, if, if we do this properly, isn't it risk, isn't better to put a portfolio like that together because at least you know everything I'm doing is going to get you 7% of what we're talking about. It's going to get your 10% return, which would be enough to justify the other two, right? And that's another way of leveling risk, right? One thing that you want, okay, so now it's like, okay, well, all right. We, we, we spoke, you know, philosophy and we've been talking for over an hour here and I don't care. It's, this is great. This is one of the longer shows. Maybe we'll break it down into sections for people and we'll just, maybe we'll end with this because it's been so deep. So we've got all this philosophy of technology. Um, we break it down. We can break it down. We, t- we talked about logistics a little bit. You're a little bit involved in healthcare. I, f- I find healthcare to be um, just tragically broken um in so many ways and especially in the technology world because there's just so much great opportunity there and i think that the maybe the path forward is long and there's a lot of politics and a lot of things involved like digital charting and do i have access to my digital medical records and why can't i fly to morocco where i was last month and my why can't the hospital there just pull up my entire digital history why can't it be on my little iphone watch or something like that it probably should be it could be but um, then there's just healthcare in general and workers in the hospital and a shortage of workers. What, what, you know, where, where, where's the future there? Cause I know you have a little bit of involvement in this somewhat sure. or some, sure. some thoughts, you know what I mean? Yeah. Huge issue. And usually huge issues end up having the best solutions, right? Because you, you really have to think through it and that it's a societal thing, right? How they treat healthcare in other countries is different. Right, and without insurance right. robbing me, and without insurance dipping their pockets into everything, it probably get killed now. The next thing is like, Phil Howard of dissecting popular IT nerds assassinated, you know. Um, exactly. so, so where's it heading, right? So we're a country, and I'll just speak from our perspective, that we tend to look at only the most high-profile tragic diseases, and you know, we, we can get close to curing cancer and, and other things, right? And there's a huge amount of uh, components that, that happen in there. Whereas the daily health care of just staying fit or taking care of normal things from COVID, right? That yeah, yeah. It goes to CVS now or it goes to Walmart and you, you have a, a, a different level of um, where you get your care taken care of, right? Because that hospitals used to make their money by keeping beds filled. They can't do that anymore, right? It, 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 it's because they don't have the workers. They would like to do it, but nobody wants to work in hospitals anymore. So once again, if you were to design something, the problem statement is this. How do I fix insurance? And how do I perhaps fix the worker thing? Can more workers be done through robotic processes or through data, right? Can um, um, a certain level of education be good enough to do a certain amount of the functions, right? That could only be done before by people who only had doctorates and, you know, eight years of cross-service. And we're seeing that with physician assistants and certain levels of nurses. And, and it's not that you're seeing a degradation, you're just seeing it more affordable and more accessible coming across there. I think that the um, fact of the matter is, is people are living longer than they have in the past, um, that it's more expensive than ever, right, to, to get health care. And I think the only way that 
healthcare costs will lower is if these insurance companies can get their profits in another direction. If they had another avenue, it could be funding sustainability risk. Let's say if you're a clever insurance company that underwrites climate change technologies um, that work and you suddenly are making X amount of profit, could it allow you to take the cost pressures off of producing diabetes drugs, right? Because you're still hitting their stakeholder needs and things. So insurance is just insurance. I think a lot of these companies, you know, whether it's healthcare insurance or property and casual or climate change insurance, as long as they are hitting their numbers or increasing their business patterns, I think you'll start to see some changes taking place. I think um, AI, they constantly talk about AI being a huge implication to um, healthcare and uh, my own dentist. I went in there the other day to get my teeth cleaned and I didn't need x-rays. She said, but I'm going to do x-rays on you. And I said, why? She says, I'm building a database of all patients' teeth right now because I went took a, a six-week class in AI programming, and I now have 50,000 pieces of data that I could compare. And I said, so who did the programming for you? She said, I did it myself. I never programmed before. It took me six weeks to learn how to do this. And it took me six weeks then later to build the program. And I'm, now I'm using it, and I'm training with a network of other dentists, and I'm going to be able to reduce your bill. And it could give you better health care in your dental. So there's a lot of promise that's out there. I might want to have that person on the show. Yeah. Should be great that's insane. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. It's insane. Yeah. So. What can I selfishly do? We're going to fill you, build a pro. Um, yeah. There, there, I'm, there could be another model too. Maybe, maybe there's a better model. Maybe insurance doesn't need to, maybe, maybe it, it's, maybe it doesn't need to exist at all. I, I question insurance, you know, well, insurance tied to people's pensions and there's a whole bunch of things. The other question that I would say is, does IP need to exist? I don't know. I don't know either. I become less and less convinced that there's any value to it. So explain. Well, traditionally IP are patents or, you know, unique um, information that you have um, coming across there. And you were given a certain amount of period time before it can be released publicly where other groups can benefit across there. And that's a capitalistic approach. Mm-hmm. But in today's world, honestly, how much IP is truly protected and what's just out there anyway, right? No, every time every time someone comes up with a new golf club, China copies it and we got a new golf. You know, I mean, it's not like... Uh... It's much in the other direction too, to be, let's be honest, right? Uh, yes. I'm sure throughout. So is there a better way um, of doing this, of, of having this? It's not to say information. And, I, and just so you know, I only say that because every time I meet with an IT director that has manufacturing on mainland China, he's always asking me, how do I prevent packet sniffing? And how do I prevent this? And we're like, oh, you probably can't. You and you know, you can't. And we're, oh, what kind of encryption can I do? So it's not yeah. like I'm really picking on China, but I am. I'm definitely, you know, I'm picking on I China a little bit just because it comes up, you know, the Great Wall of China. And yeah, it's just, that's it. So. You want to solve problems, you know, there's two different. If you want to truly want to solve problems, you're thinking open source and, you know, availability and GitHubs and things for, for people to share, right? The, you know, the solution making. But at the same time, you want to protect IP because you're saying that's my knowledge and I should own that and um, I should have an advantage in business and, and make a success of it. Why am I else motivated? If you're original enough to, you can't be copied. The other thing I was saying about the chat GPT thing the other day, I was like, it's only as good as the person behind it asking the questions too. Well, it's that, but it's also what information is being fed into it. What's the source of the data? That's the true, you know, value of 
of why you're seeing the metas and the Facebooks and others um, trying to gather as much social data as possible because that's what the natural language queries are being based off of. Yes, you can ask the questions, but the answers are going to come back off your data sources. And this is the challenge to mm. IT companies, including the Googles. Just give and me an idea. Else. Yeah. Because, and the McKinsey's, right? Because <laughs> they're using other people's data that they don't yeah. own. They're saying, yeah. I've worked on projects. I understand yeah. your models. I'm dumping yeah. this into my AI thing. But guess what? It's not their data, right? Um, I want to so, farm people. Now I want to farm people. I want to find the smartest people. I want to find the top. Because I'm a firm believer that 80 in the 80 20 rule, right? I believe that uh, humans are born. Um, the 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 foundation, the foundations, the foundation of humans is ignorance, and it's only through seeking knowledge and 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 reading and and you know and things like this that we actually I, I think you know move forward. So the top twenty percent and, and the, the majority of humans are somewhat uh, guided by desires, and I think we see that in. in um, uh -huh. uh, legislation and, and things like this like you know for example the legalization of marijuana you know remember in the 80s when it was like this is your brain on drugs and an uh, egg in the frying pan and reefer madness and all that and now all of a sudden it's you know the miracle you know miracle drug and you know it's you know pharmaceutical you know I mean, it's just like I, to me that's a that's a perfect example um so yeah, let's just farm the top 20%, throw it into an AI model. Let's get the right data. Get get the right data that's coming across there. So, you know, healthcare is a, there. It's, it's, it's a big problem to solve, and it's not going to be solved off of existing models, right? Some disruptor is going to come in there uh -huh. and they say, I can provide it better. And you're starting uh -huh. to see that. You're seeing Amazon, right, offering yep. to, you know, start putting models out there, including education. You're certainly, you should just not always look at a Western-centric point of view. You should say, so what is happening in South Korea? What is happening in China? And how are, and how are they dealing with that, right? I really um, just want to get on a show and ask, ask Jeff Bezos. I really want to do like, can you imagine, like, like years ago, did you ever imagine this would go where it went from a garage selling books? Um, does he think back now? I mean, really, does he think back and be like, wow, what the heck? You know what? I don't think he thinks back. I think he think. I honestly say he thinks yes. everything that. I see. See, that's the same question you asked me. Is it's like okay? Well, I did it, so therefore I'm just going to keep on expanding it. No, you. It's probably the same thing that motivated him to go do that. Is how he probably addresses every day. He's got other problems to solve to keep this thing afloat and to grow and all the other you know trappings, right? And benefits that come with it. But I guarantee you, every day he's thinking, what's that next thing, right? And and I'm sure he doesn't change his personality on that. I, I'd be surprised. I just fascinating to me. Uh, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure. I I find this very. I hope everyone out there listening has been you know either renewed or sparked or or it's just it's been such a great show. Do you have any final words of advice? or anything for for people out there listening the you know the the IT directors that are in charge of technology for an organization that may be stuck in a cost center that may be you know maybe maybe they're they've got old technology silos whatever it is what's your your final piece of advice to anyone yeah i, I think the lesson that that i've learned um is um it's okay not to know all the answers right and to go solve for situations where you don't have everything 
figured out. Um, and then I would also would say that the importance of IT cannot be underscored, right? Not everything collapses if the technology doesn't work. And if the, the, the side is, that's just who we are and where we've evolved to. And often it's always being looked at to be commoditized. Um, you know, there's that funny joke, you know, you call the ID department, they live in a cave and, you know, their answer is turn it on and off, right? Yeah. <laughs> turn it on and off. Yeah. I think guys are pretty brilliant, you know, um, through there. Um, they're still, they're, most of them are nerds, um, usually led by a couple of business savvy folks. And I would say that the idea of those first inventors, you know, the first guy who came semiconductor, the first one who thought of the internet, that's great. It was the IT departments that enabled the world, right? They're the ones that made it real and actually made it functional. So there's always going to be IT. It might be a completely different world of IT of what they're doing. They might be IT for robots and IT for AI and all, but you still need that department. And they're probably still going to say, did you try turning it on and off? Because they're going to say, what's the simple solution first before we have to start pulling things apart to, to get it working right? So that's yes, my yes. advice. Thank you, sir. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you.